welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey everybody, welcome to a very special episode of the podcast, Catholic Stuff You Should Know. This is uh, your host, Father John Neppel. I am not with any of the other hosts. I have been rid of them because I have a great and special opportunity today to interview Father Joseph Fessio. So welcome, Father Fessio. Thank you, Father Neppel. Glad to be here. I'm sure all your episodes are special episodes. They're all special episodes. He, I, he, I was just telling him this is like episode number 610. He says, is there still more Catholic stuff? Have you kind of covered it all, basically? So... Father Fessio and I have met on several occasions, primarily through uh, a mutual friend, Father Raymond Goronsky, who was in the Jesuits with Father Fessio. Were you in formation at all together? No, I was not. He was of a Eastern Province. Type Eastern or Province, Midwest, okay. Something like that. And he was here at the seminary. He was, yeah. And I believe that uh, the first time we met was at uh, Ignatius Press, which Father Fessio is the founder of. Um, and, uh, and he showed us around, and you very graciously, as a young guy, gave me some some books, which I'm sure everybody wants books when they come to the press, you know. So if you are not familiar with Ignatius Press and you're listening to this podcast, you've probably been living in a cave uh, for the last 40 years because, uh, as Father Goronsky used to say, um, he really felt like Ignatius Press saved the Catholic intellectual life in the United States. And I know that's a very strong statement, um, but he was so proud of uh, everything that you have done. And so um, our project today, uh, we do have Mass in mind, so we're watching the, uh, the clock here. Um, I just want to hear from Father Fessio and hear stories about um, the founding of the press and the inspiration for that. Uh, second, your connection to uh, the great communio theologians, Delubach, Ratzinger, and Balthazar, anything you'd like to share there, and then maybe we can tie it into some more contemporary stuff and questions I have uh, if we have time. How does that sound? Fine. Those are subjects about which I actually know something. All right. <laughs> since I lived them. Uh, I would start back in 1967. I was a Jesuit scholastic, that is an unordained seminarian, Jesuit seminarian, teaching philosophy at Santa Clara University. And the then general, Father Rupe, put out a call for service to the poor. And I reflected on that and prayed about that. And just east of Santa Clara, uh, which is a very wealthy area, is East San Jose, which is a very poor area. So I went out to the principal of a huge grammar school, a thousand or more students, and I said, look, I want you to pick out, get your faculty, I want you to pick out 50 eighth grade graduating students with two criteria. One, the teachers think those students have college ability, and two, the teachers think they'll probably drop out of high school as most of those kids did. I said, I don't care if they're black, or brown, Mexican, Asian, American, whatever, Indian. <clears throat> That's a criteria. Those are the criteria. College ability and likelihood of dropping out of high school. So we started this thing called Project 50 on the campus of the University of San Francisco. Oh, excuse me, Santa Clara. And uh, we brought them on campus. And this is what year again, roughly? 1967. 1967, okay. Maybe, maybe it was fall, summer of 68 something like that, uh, and brought him on campus for six weeks, gave him some remedial classes and basic you know, subjects, took them around to different companies, businesses, factories, to show them what the future could be if they got a college education. And then we took them for a week at the Jesuit Villa for uh, 
vacation. Most of them had never been out of the city. So it was a wonderful seven weeks. But this was the 60s, okay? And so I was trying to learn to play the guitar, and I was try trying to grow a little beard. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was not successful at either one. <clears throat> but my superior, uh, Father Copeland, who had been a chaplain in the Army in World War II, he was a very disciplined guy. And here's this young Jesuit trying to grow a beard, you know, playing a guitar. Didn't sit well with him. So I heard about that, <clears throat> and I went up to San Francisco to visit the provincial, Father Donahue. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, Father Donahue had been president the year before when we started the Institute. So I went in to say, look, you know, I, I want to be a good Jewish. I'm not a rebel. I'm happy to shave the beard. Not much there anyway. And he just laughed. He said, well, have you ever, ever thought about going to Europe for theology? Hmm. And I said, no. Do you want me to think about it? He says, yeah, think about it. So I'd come up with my friend, older Jesuit priest, Father C.M. Buckley, uh, and we're driving back from San Francisco to Santa Clara. He had gone to France for his theology, and so I decided, well, I'll go there too. So Buckley d directed our 30 days while we were here. Oh, he did? We, yeah, so okay. we love him. Yeah, and he, he worked a lot Amazing. with Father Garansky yeah, on these things yeah. too. Yeah, he's still, he's still alive and kicking, yeah. 97, 98 mm, years old now. Amazing. Uh, so uh, as a result of that beard... I ended up in France in 1969 at Fourvière, which was the Jesuit theologate near Lyon, France, Lyons in English. Uh, and there I met Father de Lubac. Mm. And at the time, he was kind of on, on the outside because he was too traditional, too conservative for now, the, the rising younger, younger new breed. But I wanted to take advantage of, you know, of his being there. And he was my mentor. I became his secretary. He was after World War One. He was injured, and he always had poor health. Uh, and so I would do dictation for him, and so on. Uh, and after a couple of years of theology, it came time for me to decide what to do for my doctoral work. And I, I asked him, "I said, well, Father Dudubac, uh, what do you think I should write my thesis on?" He said, "Oh, Hans Urson Balthasar, the greatest theologian of our time, and perhaps all time." Wow. Now, Father Dudubac was a very measured person. He had a great sense of humor, and he was very lively, but still, in his judgments, he was very, very sober. Uh, and so that meant a lot to me. I said, well, okay, um, where should I go to do this? He said, well, there's a young uh, professor. He's a friend of mine in Regensburg, Germany, Professor Ratzinger, uh, and I'll write him on your behalf. And so Father Dudubac wrote to uh, Cardinal, not Cardinal, and Professor Father Ratzinger, and I was accepted as a doctoral student uh, by Professor Ratzinger. So what a blessing, Father Nepple. Amazing. To, you know, to have been with these people. Uh, and just as a side note now, it was a parallel thing. Uh, I did not uh, drink before I uh, became a Jesuit, or even after, uh, for many years, until I got to France. Now, at that time, I was, I was uh, 20 years, 27 years old. And uh, you drank wine with the meal. It wasn't a drink. It was part of your food, part of your meal. And I, I began to appreciate good wine. Even bad wine I would appreciate. You should mix, mix water with it. Uh, and then I, I did my doctorate at Regensburg in Bavaria. And there, of course, it's not wine but beer, which mm -hmm. is the staple for your meals. And uh, <clears throat> I began drinking beer. And I discovered in Bavaria 13 different kinds of beer, not brands, but kinds. 
Märzenbeer, Bach, Doppelbach, Weissenbeer, Hefeweizen, you know, it goes on and on. And uh, after I finished my doctorate, uh, I came back to the United States and I had my first American beer, a brand I will not mention, which right. has now been supplanted. Okay. Uh, and I spat it out. And I said, if this is beer, I need another name for what I was drinking in Bavaria. Well, after getting back to the United States, I've been giving, giving retreats to, to nuns during the summertime. And I would be quoting to Lubach and von Balthasar and Bouillet and Ratzinger and von Speyer, this whole group that I got to know uh, in Europe. And one nun asked me one time a question and answer. I said, well, Father, uh, who are the great American theologians? And I said, I, I told him the beer story. And I said, you know, we got some good people here, but if you're going to call them theologians, I need another name, name yeah. for what I was yeah. experiencing in Europe. Uh, <clears throat> at that time, I was teaching theology at the University of San Francisco, and I got to know a young layman named John Galton, a very zealous young layman, and we began giving retreats together, and we had a reading club together. We'd read various books. And this is in the Institute? Um, well, this is before the institute was founded. Well, this is during that time because he became the the associate, my director, associate director of the Saint Ignatius Institute, which I helped to found in 1976, I think it was. And if I can just oh, uh, go ahead, put John. a, put a yeah, word in that. Let me have a drink. Go ahead. Yeah, take a drink. The um, the Saint Ignatius Institute at the University of San Francisco was in the 80s kind of the, the place where you would go if you were looking for an Orthodox formation. The, this Steubenville hadn't been reformed. Benedictine hadn't been reformed. You didn't have the new foundations like Ave Maria and University of Mary and these things. So this was kind of like, from friends who were there with you studying, that was the, the place to be at the time. So Yeah, that, that's true. We were kind of a pioneer in that. Thomas Aquinas College began a year before or the same year, something like okay. that. But it was, it, was, it was Thomas Aquinas and us at the time. So we had this little reading group and reading various books, but I went, every so often I'd take a passage from De Lubac or from Ratzinger and I'd, I'd translate it for them and we'd discuss it. And John said, you know, Father, this is, this is such profound material. This should be available for, you know, for English-speaking readers. Said, well, let's, let's start a press then, you know. So at that time, <coughs> Frank Sheed, who was the doyen, the dean of Catholic Publishing in the U.S., he himself is an Australian, who would travel back from New Jersey to Australia every year, and he stopped in San Francisco. We'd have him speak to our students. And, of course, he, he and his wife, Maisie Ward, founded Sheed and Ward. Mm -hmm. uh, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, Frank, or Mr. Sheed, I'd probably call him that at the time, um, what do you think about our starting a publishing company? He said, oh, he said, by all means, but be ready for 10 years of grief. And so we said, okay, well, we'll do that. We got a little grant from the Durante Foundation. Uh, Carolyn Lemon, who was a co-foundress, I guess, co-founder with me in 1978, she and I went to the library, a Gleason Library on the campus of the University of San Francisco. And uh, we, we looked at books. We found books we liked the paper, you know, mm -hmm. not bright white, but kind of an off-white national paper. We found a typeface that we thought was very elegant and beautiful and readable, and then we found different formats. So we picked out two formats, a typeface and a paper. And that's how we started with our first couple of books. And our first two books, which were published in January 1979, were The Heart of the World hmm. by Hansus and Balthasar and Woman in the Church by Louis Boyer. So 
that's how we started. Wonderful. Um, was that the heart of the world? Was that with Erasmus Live America? Says the preface. Yes. Or was that later? Yes, okay. he did. Yeah. Translated. Magnificent. And by the way. The way he became involved, Erasmo Levin Marikakis, who is now Father Simeon of the Trappists, was that uh, we needed a translator for these works we were doing. And I wrote von Balthasar, and he said, uh, uh, Erasmo Leva is your man. He's a brilliant linguist. He's a young man, but I mean, speaks many languages, uh, did his theology, his, his, his studies in literature in Europe. And so I wrote, he just graduated from Emory University in hmm. Atlanta, Georgia. And so he came out, we, oh, that was it. He translated the first book for us, which was They Followed His Call by Adrian von Spire, which we did not publish. We had that published by uh, St. Paul Press in Staten Island. But uh, we hired a rasmus to come out and teach at the Institute. So he came out to San Francisco, and then we worked together on these things. Wow, that's an amazing uh Amazing story. That was 1979, you said? Uh, this would have been 1979. We published the first two books, and Erasmus probably came out in 78, something like that. The uh, book Women in the Church is uh, one of my favorites. I teach ecclesiology. Um, it is not in print, I don't believe, anymore. I think it's hard to find, or has it come uh, back? I have think you guys we, redone it? Actually, hmm, it's an interesting thing. We keep almost all our books in print. This is 45 years ago. Yeah. We published, or 46, yeah. or 40, 44. Uh, but you know, find the way it was an he was a very colorful character because uh, we had him teach on campus every other semester. You know, he'd come, great sense of humor, kind of wicked sense of humor. But he had some kind of comparisons in the beginning of that book about I don't know about uh, women and black Americans or something. It was some kind of statement which, which was sort of demeaning to women, I th we thought, you know, after looking on it, at it again. And so I think we decided we were going to revise a little bit of the beginning or just not publish it anymore. But I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's, on, if it's in print or not. Okay. Well, I have a copy sitting in the room okay. next door, so I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, Maybe just to stop and I'll just kind of contextualize why I'm interested in this conversation. I think that um, Father Fessio, among with, with several other uh, men of his generation, were the bridge back to the, the great revival of the 20th century. The, the theologians you just named, which is just so outstanding that you just, I mean, met de Lubach and rat, studied under Ratzinger and, and did your dissertation on Balthazar. And, but I feel like you... Uh, Goronsky, in his own way, was over there in the 80s, a little after your time. Uh, certainly David, uh, David L. Schindler, your, your old friend, who I'd love for you to share maybe a word about. I think about um, just that the, the men who brought, um, who brought the giants into our, and the patrimony of the West into our life, where I can, I was just teaching uh, on Balthazar this morning in an introduction to theology course, and that I have the ready, the ready access for that. Um, but I think that's why it's it's just so remarkable um, what you what you and, and your friends have been able to provide. It was for something. Us. It certainly is a blessing. And I, I tell people when they ask, if they don't even, they don't ask, that my greatest blessing has been the people that work with me at Ignatius Press. I mm -hmm. mean, we're you know we've been there. with only about twenty of us basically because we have partnerships with other people. We contract services out. But I mean, Carolyn's been there with me for 46 years, Tony for 45, 44, 
Mark Bremley for 35, Roxanne for 40. Uh, you know, the, the, it's a family yeah. as well as a you know an apostolate, uh, and so that's been that's been a tremendous blessing. But I think. You know, I, I didn't choose this. It's one of those things where in your life you look back and you see where God was working in your life. You don't see it going forward, but you see it looking backwards. And I mean, I, I have just enough talent in certain areas that I need to run Ignatius Press and no more. For example, languages. I was in France. I was in Germany. I spent time in Italy. I can't speak those languages. I can't write those languages. But I, I can read them well enough to, dis, to, re, to, to judge whether the manuscript is published, published or not, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have a very critical mind. I, can't, I don't write things because I'm not a good writer. But I'm a, I, I'm a critic of other writers, you know. So it's a terrible thing that I, something I can't do myself, I criticize in others. But I, have, I got just the ability I need to be a publisher where we have to criticize other people to decide what we're going to publish. Uh, but I want to... In, in what you're saying there, John, I want to say something, uh, kind of a little parenthesis here. Uh, I, as you, I'm sure know, uh, Joseph Rash was born uh, on the vigil of Easter Sunday, which was April 20, April 16th, I think, in 1927. And in those days, the Easter vigil could be celebrated in the morning of Holy Saturday, before the reform in the 50s of the Easter vigil, uh, Paschal liturgies. So he was born around 4.30 in the morning in Bavaria, and it, by 8.30 his mom had brought him to the church, and he was baptized mm. on the Easter vigil mass. Okay, so his natural life and his supernatural life were right bookended by Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And he always took that very seriously himself, that he was meant to be a life, you know, his life was to be a life in the liturgy of the church. And that's why he always loved the liturgy so much. So, you know, after he resigned his pope and he was getting older, his health was frail, and he was 95, and I knew he was going to die pretty soon. I thought, I'm I'm confident that he will die on some symbolic date. Mm -hmm. So he dies on December 31st, 2022. Now that's symbolic in a secular sense because it's the end of the year, kind of a nice closure. But more importantly, it's the vigil of the solemnity of Mary, the mother of God. So here's this great man of the church that was born on the vigil of the resurrection and died on the vigil of Our Lady. And in between, his whole life was a life for the church. And then two days later, we have the feast, the yearly feast of Saints Basil and Gregory. Now there's two Gregories. One is Gregory of Nyssa, who's Basil's brother, and the other, who was named in the feast of Great Venantiansa. But those three men were both, they were friends, they were scholars, they were writers, they were bishops, they were doctors of the church and fathers of the church. And when was that? That was the fourth century. That was probably the worst century of the church. We think we've got bad times now. Go Hmm. back and read Newman's book, The Arians of the Fourth Century, where over half the bishops didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. I mean, it was really chaos. And the stalwarts there, uh, besides Athanasius, of course, who contra mundum, were, were Basil, Gregory, and Gregory. And I am predicting now that if God allows the church to go on another century or two, which is a question because you you know you wonder how long his patience will last, but uh, I predict that we will have three more 
doctors of the modern church. Henri de Bach, born 1896. Hans of Balthasar, born 1905. Joseph Rasker, 1927. They were friends. De Lubach mentored Balthasar. Both of them mentored Ratzinger. They were very, very close uh, in many ways. Uh, and I think they are the stalwarts of intellectual Catholicism in the late 20th and early 21st century. And they'll be around for a long, long time. I love hearing that. I get I get chills just thinking about uh, what you're saying because, um, you know, you knew them personally and you knew that they were not just um, theological giants, but they were men of deep faith who suffered uh, in the church. Um, and, and still, I mean, still their reputations are, are continued. I mean, I, I have these young guys who they it's suspect to read these guys and uh, and I have to kind of talk to them about what they're doing. Just read them and you'll, you'll yes. want to pray. Um, but I know that you, you've had a number of experience of just walking with them in friendship and, and seeing that they were men of heroic suffering, I think, in many ways. Um, yes, yes. But always very, all of them are very serene. You yeah. think, about, think about Pope Benedict. People called him, the, you know, God's Rottweiler and, yeah. you know, Panzer Cardinal, yeah. all sort of stuff. I remember when he was selected Pope in 2005, and at the time, I was probably the only person in the United States that actually knew him personally and spent some time with him, you know, a lot of time with him. So I became very famous myself for about a one-week period, maybe two weeks. <laughs> and I was on, I was, I was invited on this, I think it was a radio, maybe TV broadcast, <coughs> with this very well-known guy. He wears suspenders. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? I forget his name. Okay. Now. Yeah, I don't know. He's, he's a... Charlie, have any sense? Suspenders? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, it's a nation, nationwide show, you know. And he says, well, Father Fessio, uh, this is, uh, oh, it's amazing how Ratzinger has changed. I mean, uh, he, he seems so calm and, and so friendly and so warm. And I said, he hasn't changed. You finally got the real picture of who he is. Yeah. He's been portrayed in a very vicious way by the media because he's too orthodox. Yeah. But the fact is, he's a kind gentle, listening man. Here's an example. Uh, he had about 50 graduate students over maybe 10, 15 year period. And one of them, along with me, was uh, Father Vincent Toomey, who is a, a divine word priest from Ireland. Wonderful man. Really great theologian, too. And uh, Vincent Toomey, Father Toomey, had, before he had taken Ratzinger as his doctor father, his doctoral director, had been taking seminars with Karl Rahner. And he said, when you'd be 15, 20 guys around a table, and when Rahner came in, he'd sit down, he'd start talking, he'd talk for two hours, and that was the seminar. Huh. When Father Toomey and I were in Professor Rasker's seminar, again, 15, 20 people, he'd sit there, he wouldn't say a word, except to say, what do you think, Father, what do you think, uh, Sister, and so on. He would elicit from us what we thought. And, you know, I, I couldn't speak German, I can't speak German now, I couldn't speak it then, so I, I was a little hesitant to speak. Oh, yeah, was thanks to. You know, what, what, what do I think about yeah. this thing, you know? Uh, he probably said, was thanks Z. I don't know, it's very <laughs> kind of formal in the language, but, uh, so I, I would speak. But at the end of the two hours, uh, he kind of leaned back in his chair, and in two or three long German sentences, he would kind of summarize 
all that had taken place, putting everything in its proper place, emphasizing things where they should be emphasized. It was a beautiful. It was like watching a conductor at a symphony wow. at the grand finale, bringing together all the instruments in one final beautiful conclusion. And that's what he he was a listener, uh, and a profound, you know, organic thinker. I mean, I think organic things are kind of connected. And by the way. That's why when he was selected by John Paul II to be the person in Cardinal in charge of the catechism of the Catholic Church back in the late 80s, early 90s, I said, this is perfect because he has that broad view of all of the church and he's able to synthesize things and give things the right emphasis. So shortly after the catechism came out, I was I made my yearly retreat up at our retreat house. Have you been to our retreat house at Sweetwater? I have not. Oh, no. you got to come there yeah. sometime. Okay. So... Is this uh, the one Gronsky called Schloss Fessio? That's right. That was, well, that was that title was given by Father James Shaw. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, may okay. he rest in peace. Great Jesuit. Uh, but uh, anyway, what was I saying at the retreat? You were on your retreat. Uh, oh, yeah. Retreat, yeah. And I, I said, well, I, I'm going to I'm going to take the Catechism of the Catholic Church for my retreat. You know, I'm going to kind of go through it. I spent eight days on the table of contents. Wow. Because just just looking to see how the Catholic teaching is not a list of beliefs and moral, you know, propositions. It is an organic, it's a beautiful organic whole, you know, that, that just satisfies your mind and your heart. Uh, and I think that, of course, Ratzinger was following the, the previous tradition of the four pillars. Uh, but nevertheless, I think he, he, along with Father then Cardinal Schoenborn, uh, they really gave that catechism its, its definitive shape. Yeah. So you met, um, this is 1967, you went over for studies, that's when you met de Lubach. Yeah. So we're right after the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. Um, he has been rehabilitated uh, since the 19, late 1950s. He's a paratus at the council, which means he's a theological expert. Yeah. Um, he's now back in Fauvier, and he's writing. Uh, primarily, is that kind of what his yes. his life is? is right, he, he would give talks. Yeah, okay, and, uh, yeah, and then it's late '60s, so Ratzinger has not yet become the Archbishop of Munich. No, um, that was '77. He became Archbishop. Of okay, Munich. so he was still at at Regensburg. And then, how about Hansers von Balthasar? You were working on his stuff, but when did you meet him, and how did that how did that play oh, out? Oh, hmm. You know, that's something I should know. That uh, when did I first meet him? Uh, <clears throat> Well, uh, another person who's not well-known but should be is Ferdinand Ulrich, a philosopher whom I knew very well. He was at Regensburg, a close friend of Ratzinger's, uh, took me to his home. Whatever, what little German I, I learned, I learned kind of through him. Just got that in the mail today. Homo business. Oh, you yeah, did? Yeah, that's, oh. a, that's going to be a long read. But, it is. Uh, it's Ferdinand very Ulrich is becoming, uh, he's becoming more popular right now. So. Well, you know, well, and here's another parenthesis, because uh, he was so good to me, helped me learn German. His, his knowledge of philosophy and theology was just phenomenal. Uh, in fact, just a story about him. When I got to Regensburg and I was staying at his house, he was teaching at the Pedagogische Hochschule, which is a teacher's college. They wouldn't let him in the full university faculty because he was too Catholic hmm. uh, for a philosophy department. But I sat in this big aula with maybe 200 students, and he's at the lectern up there. And his German was very comprehensible. I mean, I, even I, with my limited German abilities, could really follow him pretty well. But 
He's teaching these young people who are agnostics or maybe have some kind of belief. This was in the late 60s, you know. And these are people going to a teacher's college, basically, you know, school of education. They, they don't know anything about theology or philosophy. So he's giving this course, this class, and he's talking about uh, words. What do words mean, you know? And uh, what if, if you love someone, you want to share what you have with that person, have that person share that person's goods with you? There's this desire for union and communion. Uh, but what, uh, we all desire that, that's our deepest desire, but what would happen, you know, we, we give people presents and we talk to them and we think about them, but what if we could gather up all that we are, everything we read means most to us, and, and condense that in just in one word, just in one single word that contained all of us, and we're able to give that into the heart of the other. And I'm thinking, I'm crying, I'm thinking, yeah. he's teaching them about the incarnation, yeah. the word made flesh. You know, just brilliant. Well, anyway, he he and I would go up to this little chalet off the Rigi on this mountain called the Rigi in Switzerland that was owned by... I've been to Rigi. Oh, you've been there? Rigi Husli. Well, that's right. Yeah. I, I think I helped arrange that did, with yeah. uh, Carolyn Capo. Yeah, yeah, okay. thank you. Yeah. Claudia Capo, yeah. yeah. Well, you know what it's like there. Yeah. This glorious little, little you know, this, this mountain... It's inaccessible by car. You either have a, a Seilbahn, a gondola from Vegas or near Lucerne, or the other side, Art Golda, you come up on a cog railway. But it's so glorious, and, and you get there, and you get off the little train, and the, there's a sign, it's a quote from Goethe, rings um die Helligkeit der Welt, all around the yeah. glory of the world. Yeah. There's another sign uh, in five or six languages. It says... Uh, in English, don't pick the alpine flowers. In German, es ist nicht vernünftig. It's not reasonable. Not reasonable. Yeah. In French, on the on the fepasa, one does not do that. Yeah. In Italian, estrettamente vietato. Strongly. <laughs> so, not only did they yeah. have the same message, but they had the the kind of the style of, yeah. the, of the country. Anyway, he had this this little chalet there and. Uh, I'd be there with, with Ulrich. And then in the summertime, uh, Balthasar would invite Dulubach there. So I was there for at least one summer, if not two, for two weeks with Dulubach and Balthasar. And we helped do the cooking and this and that. But uh, we were there listening to them talk and Unbelievable. You know, having mass with them. I still have a chalice, you know, uh -huh. and a patent that they celebrated mass with, you know. I'm, I'm keeping that. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know exactly when I first met Balthasar, but after uh, after that, I know I had spent a lot of time with him after that. And then I was so, I, well, I was, again, I'm a part Italian, so I cry easily, but uh, he, he, before he died, he did an interview with uh, uh, the Swiss television station or something like that. And uh, they were talking about how he'd been an outsider and, you know, kind of lost his friends because of his positions. And he said, well, I mean, I mean, do you have any friends? And he said, well, for example, I have this, this friend in San Francisco. He referred to me as his friend. Wow. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So and, beautiful. Yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. So, so had Adrian von Speyer died prior yeah, to she your died, arrival? Yeah, she, she died in 1967. Okay, so before you had, you had gotten there. And... Um, I had a, Goronsky had a copy of your dissertation. I remember, <laughs> I remember flipping through it. Uh, was it? 
It was on Balthazar. I forget what it was specifically. It was on the origin of the church in the kenosis of Christ in the ecclesiology of Hanshos and Balthazar. And now that I'm old and nothing can happen to me, uh, I will make it public now for the first time, Father Nippel. Okay. That uh, I started writing this thesis in the Theological Library of University of Regensburg. This university is one building a half a mile long. Okay? Oh, just man. one building. It's just yeah. a, it was some architectural idea. And at the far end, they had the Theological Library, and next to that, Anglistic, they called it, you know, English literature. Uh -huh. And I'd write for about an hour in the morning, and I couldn't take it anymore. I'd go to the Anglistic, and I started to read C.S. Lewis. And then I saw this book where C.S. Lewis said, this is one of the great, you know, stories of our time. It burns like fire. It cuts like, like a sword. Lord of the Rings, you know. This is before it was well known. Ah. So I began reading that. I read for the rest of the day, get on the bus, read it to the apartment. Next morning, get on the bus, read it to the, take off an hour for writing. I finally wrote an introduction to the, my my <laughs> thesis, but I just it was it was pretty poor. So I had all these file cards because you know, but at that time, Balthazar had not written quite as much, so it was a little easier to yeah. to go through his stuff. But I had all these, all these little three-by-five cards stacked up. and So Ferdinand Orson and I went to the Riggy one Christmas. And uh, he'd pick up the file cards, and he'd start spe speaking. I'd write it down, you know, and pick up another. Oh, he started speaking. I'd write it down. So my thesis is probably more Ulrich than it is Fessio. Huh. Uh, uh, so... But I, I knew I wasn't going to be a scholar, and I wasn't going to be, you know, an academic uh, for very long. Uh, I like to build things, you know. So uh, anyway, I do. I want to get back home, uh, and this is the way to do it. I, mean, I got my doctorate basically in two years uh, because I combined things and got classes when I was taking my master's course that were their doctoral classes and so on. Anyway, yes, Ray Goronsky, Father Goronsky, I believe, had a copy of that of that thesis. I think I have a copy too somewhere. Okay. He also had some of your, uh, the post uh, posthumous works of Adrienne that he borrowed, which I hope you got back because uh, when he passed away, but uh, some of her. Yeah, the Nachlachwerke, yeah. Um, we are uh, looking at the time here, and I do want to have you prepare uh, for Mass. And so I want to shift now to, uh, those are the giants of the 20th century who you had this incredible relationship with. But then bringing it back to the United States, um, I'm thinking of D.L. Schindler um, and others. Like, just who were the friendships that uh, that the Comunio world kind of extended into as you uh, founded the in the beginning of the founding of the press? And well, uh, David Schindler and I became friends at Mount St. Michael's Philosophy for the Jesuits. That would have been sixty. Hmm. 64 to 66, something like that. Uh, and uh, he was quite an athlete. Big, yeah, he, was he wasn't big, too tall, but big, yeah. strong. Yeah. Basketball was his sport. And I was never that great, but I had a left hook, you couldn't stop, okay? <laughs> so, I mean, he would maintain until the day he died that he kept beating me, but I will maintain now, and I did then too, that I always beat him because I he couldn't stop the shot. Uh, uh, he left the Jesuits uh, and went to Pomona or something like that, one of those colleges down in Southern California, got his degree. And then in 1971, 
70, 71, something like that, I was down in Father Dubach's little room. He's got he's got a room with his his bedroom on the side of it, you know, kind of a a, a very austere place. I'm sitting there, and the phone rings. So I go get up, and he says, "No, no, you stay there." Okay, so I hear him on the phone. Oh no, no, I can't, I can't, no, I can't do it this year. I really can't. I'm sorry. I'd love to come, but I can't. Like I said, what was that about? He said, well, that was Carl Vio. He wants me to come to the Papal Theological Commission meeting, but I, I really can't. I'm not feeling well, and I can't go alone. There's no one to go with me. I said, well, I'll go with you. You would? I said, sure. So he picks up the phone. He calls the Cardinal. He says, Cardinal, yeah, I'll be coming, you know. So I flew with the Lubach uh, to Rome. That was October, right? No, hmm. I think it was September, October, something like that, in 1971, 72. And uh, that was when de Lubac, Ratzinger, Boyer, and von Balthasar were talking about Communia, Communia magazine because they had been involved in concilium right. after the council, which was intended to kind of bring the fruits of the council you know, into the following years. Uh, but it, it, it was... Kung and Rahner and Skillebeck said it really went off the rails, and so they left the editorial board and they wanted to found their own. So uh, here I'm a young, I, you know, I had no experience or anything, but I said, well, I, I'll help in the United States if I can. So uh, they said, oh, good. Well, contact Andre Emery. She was a woman who was head of a, a secular institute called A Lady of the Way in, in Los Angeles, and I did. And so with Andre, we organized the first meeting. When Jim Hitchcock was there, uh, Father uh, became a bishop later from Fort Wayne, the Jesuit name escapes me. And I had, I had Dave Schindler invited. I said, this, he can be the editor. So that's how Dave Schindler began to be the editor you know, of mm. Communia magazine. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Was So you were in, I mean, Ratzinger and Balthazar talk about that dinner that they had. I've always wondered which where the restaurant was when they started to kind of cook up. I don't know if it was the Via, the Via Veneto or which where oh. they were, but they he always talks about one night when the idea for Comunio kind of yes. came together. And I actually have that. There's a book that we want to get in English. It's a, about a 700-page biography of uh, Balthazar, but it's all based on letters and appointment books and so on and that's mentioned that that dinner they had in oh that's in fantastic yeah, yeah. I, I forget the restaurant oh yeah we'll have <laughs> to find it um, all right that's good well i would just say um as a final question to you do you have any advice young theologians young seminarians this is a uh, the polemics and the the ambiguities of of the kind of the moment here uh, i think a lot of us felt like when ratzinger died there was just like it was kind of an end of an era. And do you have any just words of wisdom for how to kind of navigate these times? Well, you know, I've I've lived under seven popes, and we've had some of the greatest popes of all time. I think uh, I just visited John Paul the Great High School before oh, yeah. coming over okay. here, and uh, this institution we're sitting at is kind of dedicated to John Paul II, the new evangelization. And one of the beautiful things about being a Catholic is that you have a tradition that goes back 2,000 years with all these brilliant luminaries starting, well, and you get the Old Testament as well, but starting with Christ in the New Testament, uh, we've got sacred scripture, which is always the core, you know, of our 
thinking of our theology. We've got the great fathers of the church, the saints, the spiritual writers, the councils. I mean, we, we want to be attentive to those who are in authority over us. And yet their whole purpose is to maintain and preserve the faith which was handed on once for all to the fathers, right? So I, I think in, the, in modern times, even with John Paul II and Benedict, uh, there was kind of a negative side to their, their brilliance was that people associated everything a pope says and does mm. with, with the fullness of the Catholic faith, which it can be sometimes, but not all time, not at always. Uh, and I remember, this may be a quirk in me, Father Nepil, but I didn't, uh, even when I had a chance when I was in Rome as a younger priest, I, I had a chance to meet with, with, you know, Pope John Paul II, and I didn't take it, I didn't do it. I said, I don't, you know, he's a pope, that's great, I'll obey him what, what, he, what he's going to communicate it, you know, in a definitive way. But, you know, the church isn't the pope. The pope is here for the sake, service, serve warm day, you know, serve the service of God. And we want to support the authority of the Roman pontiff and of our bishop. But let's face it, not all bishops are on the right track. Right. Uh, I have to say now, I've lived through an age when they were the majority, I would say, were quite liberal to where we are now, and this is, 19, this is 2023, the majority of the Catholic bishops in the United States are very solid. Uh, the, the large majority of them are. And the young priests, I mean, you're here at a seminary, you know that there are really fine young men in the seminary now. And yeah, they're serious. And when I was growing up, you know, I, I didn't know about this liberal, conservative, this and that. It was all Catholic, and you know, that was it. But uh, now, you come into seminary, you be, they're aware that there's divisions in the world, divisions in the church, and they're here because they want to follow Jesus. They want to follow Christ. They want to follow the, the, the heart of the church, you know. And so they're not going to be swayed by every wind of doctrine, as, as Paul would say. Uh, and so I would say <clears throat> for those young people out here at the seminary, uh, don't worry too much about social justice. There's plenty of time for that. You can do some work, but you're not going to have much time. This is the last time you have the chance to really enter into the intellectual tradition of the mm -hmm. church. And I know a lot of diocesan priests say, well, I just want your confessions the same mass. Don't give me all this stuff about theology. you know." But that that is the... It's the foundation, and when you see someone like Ratchet, let me back up a step here. <clears throat> you know, after, after having the Lupac as my mentor, and then studying Balthasar, and I went to the younger Ratchet, I thought, well, he, you know, he's just a young popularizer. You know, he's not a, not a great giant like they are. Well, I was wrong. I mean, he's, he is their equal as a theological giant. The difference is, I think, because he taught more than they did. Neither Balthasar nor Lubach taught very much. He was a teacher. And so his writings are in many ways more accessible mm. than either de Lubach's or von Balthasar's. And I, I just finished, I'm, I got on the plane with me, I've got his latest book, I mean, The Last Writings of Benedict. You know, it's a compilation of things he wrote kind of you know, on occasion, but wasn't published until after he was dead, until he died. But oh my gosh, the beauty, the depth of what he says there. And so, Immerse yourselves in these great writers, and they'll lead you to others. I mean, you can't read Lubach or Balthasar or Ratzinger without wanting to read Augustine and Aquinas and, and all these other people. And then on another topic, I would say, uh, I, there are some writers of the 20th century 
who I believe have not been surpassed and are still worth reading uh, in extenso. One would be C.S. Lewis, hmm. another would be G.K. Chesterton, and of course Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, is a great you know piece of literature. Uh, but all all their friends too uh, can be very enriching. Well, thank you. That's beautiful. I think uh, the final word there on friendship. These are constellations, as Balthazar would say. Um, the 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 racehorse Mont and the Comunio, uh, the Inklings of Oxford, yeah. and counted among them is uh, your little Gemeinschaft at the Ignatius Press and the the friendship you've shared. And I've had the privilege at several conferences of um, being with your community and just uh, the warmth and the love of um, that they show to a young author and. Uh, a guy who also who was way worse than you at German and French, but somehow got through studies. Um, just that kind of, um, yeah, that invitation into communion. This is the heart of the church, and so thank you for everything you've done. So grateful for uh, the the kind of infinite wealth that we've received now from this great patrimony and from all your work. So I'm grateful for your time here. I need to shout out Ben Doming, our mutual friend who made this connection. Thanks to Charlie here for being with us uh, as well. So. Uh, we're going to head to Mass, uh, and a thank you. This is going to come out in Advent, so we're wishing you all a very blessed uh, third week in Advent as we move towards the um, the preparatory days of Christmas and the octave. So thanks again, Father Fessio. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>